And so we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to stand together as we're able. It's our way of saying with our bodies what we want to say with our hearts and bringing our full attention to the living word of Jesus. And so Andy is going to read from Mark chapter 8. A reading from Mark 8, 27 through 37. Jesus and his disciples headed out of the villages around Caesarea Philippi. As they walked, he asked, who do the people say I am? Some say John the baptizer, they said. Others say Elijah. Still others say one of the prophets. He then asked, and you? What are you saying about me? Who am I? Peter gave the answer, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus warned them to keep it quiet, not to breathe a word of it to anyone. He then began explaining things to them. It is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering. He tried and be found guilty by the elders, high priests and religion scholars, be killed and after three days rise up alive. He said this simply and clearly so they couldn't miss it. But Peter grabbed him in protest and began to correct him. Turning and seeing his disciples wavering, wondering what to believe, Jesus confronted Peter. Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get behind me. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. You have no idea how God works. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it be, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? The Gospel of the Lord. Andy, thank you. You may be seated. So on the center seam of the center square, at the center of this room, lies a centered table. And on the center of that table, the cross of Christ. And this is not by accident. Uh, this is an intentional arrangement because our worship points to and revolves around this table, and at the center of the table is the revolving around the cross and the mystery that the cross points us to. The mystery is that life is found in a pattern of life, suffering, death, and resurrection into new life. And this symbol of the cross of Christ is like the one constant you can find in almost any church you go to. Uh, Paul Shute points out that across denominational traditions, you can walk into pretty much any church anywhere in the world, and no matter the beliefs about salvation or sin or doctrine or dogma or baptism or the Bible, you're going to find cross. Like This is our universal symbol pointing us to this mystery of 
suffering and death and resurrection. And so every week we end our gathering by hurling our lives onto the cross of Christ, right? We have this liturgy that comes to us from Kenya where we actually embody like throwing our lives onto the cross of Christ and, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of my favorite points in the gathering. Uh, if you haven't ever, just don't participate one week and watch the kids do it. It's really, really fun. We've got like fastballs getting thrown to the cross of Christ and like whole bodies like moving toward the cross of Christ. It's great. The cross of Christ. So our lectionary passage that Andy just read is actually one of two gospel passages that are in the lectionary this week. We also get Mark 9, which is the following chapter, which is the story of the transfiguration. So we'll reflect on both of those today. Mark has 16 chapters to it, and we're reading today from Mark 8, right at the center of his gospel. Mark was the first gospel writer, most likely. The other gospels take shape out of what Mark wrote, which comes from Peter's reflection, which, by the way, is fascinating. Peter is often looking like a fool in Mark's gospel, and yet Peter was the one who likely told Mark what to write. So this is an example of one of the early church leaders humbly reflecting on his own flaws, and it comes to us through the gospel. Fascinating. So Mark, at the center point, the center seam of the center square of his gospel, gives us this story that was just read. It's the hinge of his gospel. For the first eight chapters of Mark, Jesus is talking about life and more life, and he's healing people, and he's doing great things, and there's miracles, and there's good healing news that is spreading life, 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 and then suddenly we get to Mark 8, and the tone shifts. And Jesus starts saying, and he says it three times in three successive chapters, he is going to die, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to rise again. He tells them this plainly three times something is beginning to shift. And why does Mark choose to leave this story where Jesus begins reflecting on this pattern, life and death and resurrection? He puts that at the center of his whole gospel. In our story, Jesus wants to know what people are saying about him, right? Like that's where it starts. Who do the people say that I am? You know that thing where people are talking about you, but they're not talking to you? <laughs> this is essentially what's happening with Jesus, right? So he wants to know, like, what's the gossip about me? What's the grapevine have to say about who I am? Uh, and and they, they respond to him. But then he makes the direct ask to his disciples, and, and you, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And my man Peter speaks up. You all know that I love Peter. Um, and Peter makes this bold confession of faith. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Son of Man, might be one way to put it. The Son of Man was this tradition, this uh, phrase that stretched all the way back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. It was a title for a royal king who would come and set up a kingdom that would never be shaken, and he would drive out his enemies, and he would heal the people, and he would set up this government that would rule forever, this eternal kingdom. That's who the Son of Man was. And you're the guy... Peter says to Jesus, you are the son of man, and Peter gets it right. 
but moments later, Peter has also gotten it wrong. Because Jesus, if we go to the next verse, he basically says to Peter, yes, you're right, I am the Son of Man, but then he twists it and says, and it is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering. And that is not the story. The Son of Man doesn't suffer, the Son of Man causes his enemies to suffer, right? Like, that's what's in their imagination. He's going to be the one in charge. And for Jesus to say that this heavenly king who will set up an eternal kingdom must proceed to an ordeal of suffering and be tried and found guilty and killed and after three days rise up alive, this is not how the story is supposed to go and Peter is flabbergasted. And he literally grabs Jesus, the word in Greek, he literally physically grabs Jesus, takes Jesus aside and begins to correct Jesus about Jesus' misunderstanding of Jesus' own story right? And it's astonishingly relevant because we do this all the time, right? Like, there are times we are so convinced that we know what God's story is all about that we correct God himself when he breaks out of the rules of what we think it's supposed to be. And nearsighted, we see only the very edge of things, but we're convinced we see it all. And inexperienced, we think we've experienced every God experience there is to experience. And impulsive, we imprison everyone within earshot to the confines of our own current understanding of orthodoxy and obedience. We see this on social media, you know, just pull up Twitter, you see this all the time. We all do this. We think we've got God figured out, and we shove him into the box. But look at what Rowan Williams has to say. He says, if you genuinely desire union with the unspeakable love of God, then you must be prepared to have your religious world shattered. If you think devotional practices, theological insights, or even charitable actions give you some sort of purchase on God, you are still playing games. The C.S. Lewis, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He himself shatters it. Whew. And so Jesus rebukes Peter's false gospel by calling him Satan. And these are the strongest words I think Jesus ever says to someone. I mean, he says them with love, but these are stern words to call someone Satan. But I don't think he's demonizing Peter. I think instead what he's doing is he's linking Peter's suggestion that there is a way to glory that bypasses the cross. He's linking that suggestion with the temptations that Satan offered him in the wilderness, right? These are the same, the message is the same. You can get everything you want, and you don't have to go through the cross to get it. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I've heard that message before, right? Satan told me that same thing, but it's not God's idea you are thinking human thoughts. In fact, you might be thinking satanic thoughts, but you're not thinking God's thoughts. Glory without the cross is not God's idea. And so crazy enough that Jesus says he must suffer on the cross, but then he takes it way further in verse 34. After calling the crowds together, he says, all of you who want to come after me must also say no to yourselves and take up your cross and follow me. And now things get real. Because up to this point, we have had a Christmas story and an Epiphany story, but now we get a Lent story. 
What I mean by that is up until now, the disciples have had a Christ to be born into their lives, and they've had a Christ to behold, and they've had a Christ to call them beloved, and they've had a Christ to believe in. But now Jesus says, I am also a Christ you must be like. And that's a different deal. It's one thing to watch Jesus do the teaching and do the healing, but when Jesus says, you come do it too, now it's gotten more intense. Yeah. Right? And right here at the center seam of the center story of the gospel, Jesus says, you must imitate me. You must follow me. And we can feel the stakes begin to rise in the story. The tension begins to mount. To follow Jesus is not just to watch him do Jesus things. It is to choose his way, to choose his priorities, his agenda, his ways and means, his posture of being in the world, which is cruciform, sacrificial love. And it's tempting to tell the Jesus story and skip over this part. We can reach back to the Christmas Jesus. We revel in that Jesus. We can cheer on the Easter Jesus who rises victorious from the grave. But here we stare down the question as it asks us, who do you say I am? Who do you really say that I am? Right after this comes the transfiguration. Jesus leads Peter and James and John up onto a high mountain. And I think this is the continuation of the same lesson that he started saying verbally in the chapter before. Because among other things, what happens here in this story is we get an actual, geological, tangible representation of what's going on, right? This is the center point of the gospel. It's the center point where Jesus says, up till now, we have had this path that has felt, you know, like ascent, and, and the question that the mountain poses, this triangle shape of the mountain where there's one path leading upward, one path leading downward, the key question is, will following Jesus ultimately prove to be a path of ascent to higher heights and greater glory and victory and ease and success, or will it be a path to descent, to cruciform service, to humility, to sacrificial self-giving love? And the mountain is a metaphor it's a continental divide for their lives and for our lives too. Because a lot of us get into this journey of following Jesus with that hope of like, this is, this is good news, right? There's great healing here. There's, there's great, uh, uh, there's, there's like some redemption here. And that's all true, right? That's true. Absolutely. Following Jesus is to follow on a journey that leads us to healing and to wholeness. But also, Jesus says, you must follow me as I walk downward into Jerusalem where I know I will be tried unjustly and killed and suffer and die for the sake of others. And so up to this moment, Peter had found it easy to call Jesus the truth and the life, to make confession, you are the Messiah, the Savior, God. But now a deeper question takes shape in front of him, which is, can I also call Jesus the way? It is very possible to happily confess Jesus as truth and life, but actually deny Jesus as way. Yeah. And it happens all the time around us. It happens in our own lives all the time. We arrive at this crossroads many times in a life. Will I trust Jesus' way over ways that seem more practical conventional, comfortable, reliable, successful. 
So I know what I'm saying here is not new. This is basically a version of what I say like every third week. <laughs> I know, I recognize it too. But I hope we might actually apply this to the circumstances of our lives. So I, I mean, what would it look like in your life right now to follow Jesus downward? Is there a place in your life where you are holding God hostage to your own agenda, to your own priorities, your assumption about what his mission in the world and in your life must be? Is there a place where you're pulling God aside to correct him about his story? Where might Jesus be inviting you into greater trust and surrender and co-suffering love? So I don't want us to misunderstand uh, as I say all of this, because Jesus deeply cares about our pain. And it is right and good to pray for more healing and freedom and justice and for goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our life. Jesus cares about all those things. So what I don't want you to hear is like Jesus asks us to, you know, be martyrs on this constant life of misery for God's sake somehow. That's not the gospel, right? That's some sort of false martyrdom thing. So that's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is the way to the wholeness we desire, the freedom, the, the mercy, the goodness that we desire is through a path that always involves death and resurrection. It's just God's way of being in the world. It's how God leads us. There is no bypassing of the cross of Christ. We cannot follow Jesus if we are not willing to actually follow Jesus. And so, after both the stories today, Jesus tells his followers not to talk about what they've seen, which I think is his way of saying, you still don't quite get it, <laughs> right? Because we, we all still don't quite get it. Um, as I was preparing this this week, I was thinking, I don't quite get this. Like, what does this really mean in modern Alpharetta American life? I don't know. But what Jesus seems to be saying is we have to keep our mouths shut until we see the process of death and resurrection play out a couple of times in our lives. We have to get it at a deeper level because until we do, we keep preaching gospel stories that try to skip the cross but keep the glory. And we see that all around us, right? Joseph Small puts it this way. He says, plumbing the depths of the theology of the cross is difficult when the dominant expressions of Christian faith in North America prize personal fulfillment, deliverance from pain, success in corporate life, and decisive influence in national political life. The theology of the cross declares that the church is not Christendom, and faith is not certainty, hope is not optimism, and love is not painless. So we'll circle back to verse 34 as we start to land the plane, and really Jesus lands the plane for us. He says, it is necessary the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering, and if you want to come after me, you too must take up your cross. But I want to help us hear this rightly, because Jesus is not wanting us to deny the healthy God-created image of God that is forming and flowering inside of us. Rather, what Jesus wants is for us to deny the tyranny of the self that keeps us trapped and threatened and terrified and terrorizing others. 
there are things to come alive to. There are things being brought to life in you. The, the wholeness that God is inviting, the desire for more healing and, and more goodness and more abundant life to be manifest in your life. But there are also things to die to, like our demand for how and why and when those good things will show up. And my insistence on a shortcut path to power my desperate need to be the king in charge, my self-reliant, self-dominated, self-centered story. And so Jesus does not call us to misery or to unnecessary suffering, but he does say that it is necessary that there be some suffering, that even the Son of Man must suffer the whole journey of death and resurrection, and that it is necessary that we allow our lives to be led on that same cross-shaped path. And in fact, I wonder if it is our attempts to avoid that necessary suffering that cause so much unnecessary suffering in the world. Because if I don't believe Jesus can really resurrect my dreams, I will wreak havoc on the world to keep my dreams alive. And if I do not believe I am enough, I will neurotically try to validate myself and dominate others to keep myself okay. And if I do not trust that God will keep me safe, I will live constantly under the threat of everything. If I do not trust that God's kingdom is going to come, I will enact pitiful, unchrist-like power structures in the here and now. And we see this around us, right? And we see this in our hearts, in our own lives. But anyone who tries to save their life will lose it, Jesus says. And what's the point of gaining all of that if you lose your own soul? And so on the center seam of the center square, at the center of this room, a centered table, and on the center of the table, the cross of Christ. And it reminds us that we are invited into a story. God's life comes through one way only. And we have a symbol for the cross of Christ, but today what I want us to ask ourselves is like, what's the symbol of the cross of Jordan? What, how will I liturgize in my life that not only do I send all my problems to the cross of Christ, also I am sent out to love and serve the Lord in a cruciform posture myself? How will I remember the cross that I'm invited to carry as I say, Father, not my will, but yours be done? So let's pray about that for a moment. So, Lord, I'll just give you some space. to share with us if there's anything that you would invite us into that looks like following you on a way of sacrifice and love.
as we open up our arms into that cross-shaped posture. May it be that we're able to receive what you have for us with hands open as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.